You don't have to be a savant, be able to read tea leaves or the stars to recognize that danger is still looming on the horizon. Now, 2020, it shocked everything and everyone. Global travel came to a halt. Small businesses were shuttered. Schools were shut down. Even still, we're seeing rolling lockdowns across the Middle East, India, and Asia as cases explode right now in India, causing America to halt travel from India. But in all of this, the government has turned, the governments across the globe have turned to the one thing that they can trust and rely on. That is their printer. They have been printing trillions and trillions of dollars to help keep the economy afloat, you afloat, and their fiscal budgets afloat. But that begs the question, are we on the verge of seeing hyperinflation? Is hyperinflation looming on the horizon, or is it something much, much worse? Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Thanks for being with me here today on the show. It means so much to me that you tune in and listen. And speaking of tuning in, I have been tuning into the conversations that I've been having with you and my friends, and this is the thing that is on the top of everyone's mind. Is hyperinflation around the corner? What are we going to be seeing in the coming months and the coming years as governments across the globe are printing trillions of dollars? It's a scary thing. Before you maybe bounce off of this episode and say, eh, I'm not really interested in you know, the economy, macroeconomics, microeconomics, it's all so confusing. It's, it's all so confusing to me too. I totally agree, which is why we are telling two simple stories, actually great historical stories that I found really intriguing with one takeaway that you can do, because guess what? You and I, well, maybe you are, maybe you are an, an, a banker and, and in charge of monetary funds across the globe, but I'm not. I'm, I'm a pretty simple guy. And I know that I can't control what's happening with international policy and how much money global governments are printing. And so I'm like, why even bother? Why why even spend time learning or thinking about this? But if we can take a few simple steps, we can actually better defend ourselves for the future that's to come. We could actually own our futures. Who would have thunk? So- Without any further ado, we're going to tackle hyperinflation first, starting with a story going all the way back to 1923 before the rise of Hitler in Nazi Germany. Actually, it was one of the things that sparked the rise of Hitler in Nazi Germany. So in early 1923, German workers embarked on a prolonged general strike as a protest against the occupation of French troops. Despite its perilous economic conditions in Germany, the Weimar government decided to support the strike by continuing to pay the striking workers. They began to print more banknotes, a policy which had been used on and off since 1921, so the previous two years. So the paper money was continually printed and printed and pumped into the German economy, leading to a devaluation of their currency and hyperinflation because their currency, the German mark, was not attached to the gold standard. Now, in America, 
the U.S. dollar is not attached to the gold standard either, which is one of the main drivers uh, of this questioning and this worry that people have is, are we about to see hyperinflation? Well, the story continues. By mid-1923, the nation's central banks were using more than 30 paper factories and almost 1,800 printing presses and 133 companies were printing banknotes. In fact, during this time, the one profitable business around was the paper and printing <laughs> printing companies, which is totally ironic. The, at the height of the crisis, Germans, state governments, major cities, and large companies, and even some pubs were beginning to issue their own paper money and own currency. Imagine you're going down to your local grocery store and they're saying, hey, instead of taking the German mark, we are, we're going to issue our own dollars. We're going to issue our, our own marks that you can spend money here with us using them. To give you an idea of just how fast this spiraled out of control, in 1918, a loaf of bread cost one quarter of a Reichmark. By 1922, it had increased to three Reichmarks. In January of 1923, one loaf of bread was 700 Reichmarks. Now you think, oh my goodness, that's horrible. Well, it doesn't stop there. In May, it jumped up to 1,200 Reichmarks. July, 100,000. September, 2 million. In October, a loaf of bread was 670 million Reichmarks, reaching at its peak 80 billion Reichmarks in November. The same thing happened with eggs. In 1918, a dozen eggs cost one half of a Reichmark, and at its peak in October of 1923, it reached 4 billion Reichmarks. The Reichmark had become so devalued and worthless that people would use them to wallpaper their house. They'd use it as toilet paper because dollars, the printed dollar, was cheaper than actually buying toilet paper. The rapid devaluation of their money made a lot of very ludicrous scenes. The value of paper money disappeared so quickly that some companies paid employees in the morning so they could rush off and spend their wages at lunchtime. Wives waited at their husbands' factories on payday so they could hurry to the stores. One man reported ordering a coffee and found that the price had doubled by the time it arrived to his table. By September of 1923, the hyperinflation crisis reached such a point that Germans needed an enormous amount of cash just to buy simple commodities like groceries. One of the funnier stories that came out of this time was a woman in Munich. She was going to buy her groceries and she had to carry all of her cash to the grocery store in a suitcase. She briefly left her suitcase outside and when she returned, she found her pile of cash sitting on the ground and her suitcase had gone missing. At the worst of hyperinflation in the year of 1923, the exchange rate for one US dollar started off at about 48,000 Reichmarks. By the end of the year in November, one dollar was worth four trillion Reichmarks. A consequence of all of this was that German corporations found it impossible to do business or trade with anyone abroad. 
There were many winners and losers from this time of hyperinflation. The worst that were affected were the middle class who relied heavily on investments, savings, or income from pensions or rent. In 1921, a family with 100,000 marks in savings would have been considered wealthy. But in two years, this would not be enough for a cup of coffee. Public servants, government employees, also suffered because increasing their wages failed to keep pace with the private sector. Among those who fared better were farmers and business owners or producers who manufactured and sold the commodities because they were able to place the value of their goods as the value of the money fluctuated. Germans with large debts actually did quite well because as hyperinflation occurred, they could easily pay off all of their loans. In fact, some smart businessmen recognized what was happening quite early in the process and borrowed a ton of money to buy property, and then they were able to repay the loan within weeks or months for next to nothing. The outcome of all this was messy. It led to Hitler being able to rise to power during this time. There's an attempted coup launched by Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists in early November of 1923, which was a sign of what was to come. And they finally got out of the problem, out of this hyperinflation. In November of 1923, they created a new reserve bank called the Renton Bank and a new currency called the Renton Mark. Now, the value of the Renton Mark was indexed to the value of gold, but it couldn't be redeemed to gold, meaning you couldn't change one rent mark for a piece of gold because they had no gold in their government. So instead, they pegged it to the US dollar and 4.2 rent marks were equal to one US dollar. Germans were eager to do away with the Reichmark and they embraced the rent mark quite quickly in putting their trust in that, even though it wasn't pegged to anything, even though it wasn't secured by anything, the trust that they had in that monetary fund, that it couldn't and wasn't going to be inflated on them overnight, caused everyone to switch over quite rapidly and caused their hyperinflation crisis to stop. But as we all know, it led to a much worse crisis in the future, which was the rise of Nazi Germany. Obviously, this wasn't the greatest of situations. The government is printing trillions of Reichmarks just to pay striked workers, which sparked this whole catastrophe where they just ended up having to print more and more money. It eroded the middle class. And you got these really comical scenes of people pushing wheelbarrows around filled with money just to buy lunch, just to buy their groceries. And what ended up stopping everything was a creation of a brand new currency. They had to shut down the old and start something new. When people hear this story or stories of what has happened in Lebanon or in Venezuela or in Greece, where you look at the debt to GDP ratio and you see that these countries have so much debt and that the way they're dealing with it is just by printing more and more money, you have to wonder, are some of these other countries next? Is America next on this list to see hyperinflation. And when you when you look at the charts, you could really start to to worry and wonder is this going to be the fate that America suffers? And with 
the U.S. dollar being the global currency and many other currencies pegged to the U.S. dollar, what is going to happen on a global level? Are we going to see a G20 summit or G6 summit where multiple nations come together and say, okay, we're going to create a brand new monetary system, a brand new global currency because this crisis has brought everyone together. And it's not enough just to have a new American system. We need a new system that everyone can buy into. Now, I've heard a lot of people argue that, well, Bitcoin is this system. And I could agree that blockchain could definitely play a part. So Bitcoin is a, a currency that has a capped mark, a, a capped level of coins of 21 million coins. You can never have more than 21 million coins, which that means by default that it is a deflationary currency. The more that people use it, the more that each coin is worth and the more that will go up. But deflationary currencies are very problematic for governments because the way that governments work and function and economies work and function is that a government is able to issue debt. And Bitcoin, you can't issue debt. You can't create new coins. Also, when you have a deflationary currency, it doesn't make sense to spend it. Why would I spend one Bitcoin today when I know that my Bitcoin will be worth 10 times as much in a year from now? So I'm going to hold on to my Bitcoins. But I do, however, think we could see a digital currency created, a global currency created with a global centralized bank that uses blockchain technology because on the blockchain, everything's transparent. It's a, a global ledger where you can see every single transaction that you or I make, which is very convenient for global governments and centralized governments. It's very convenient to be able to see exactly who you transacted with and exactly where you bought what sort of coffee. And it's all public data. So that is one possible future that we could be going to. But I think there is actually a more compelling story that we need to look at, and that is the story of deflation. And the reason that a lot of people are suspecting that inflation is not coming is because inflation happens when there's a velocity of currency. I'll explain what that means. A velocity of currency is if I have $100 sitting in my bank account, and it's not moving at all. It's just sitting there in my house, in my bank, and I'm not spending it. Well, that cash has no velocity. The way that inflation happens is when more and more dollars are flowing through the system. If I have $100 trillion sitting in my house, but I don't spend it, it's not going to cause inflation. So it's the spending that causes the inflation, not just the amount of money that's in the system. Now, there is a very famous story of a nation that went through a lost decade, Japan. It had a booming economy in the 70s and in the 80s. In the 80s, it was ranked first, actually, per capita of GDP across the globe. But then that all came to a halt. And it wasn't because of inflation. It was because of deflation and deflation happened quite quickly and it ratcheted everything down to cause everything to become stagnant. So how 
did deflation happen in Japan and how could deflation happen for us in the coming months and years? Most economic crises happen following an economic boom where valuations were disconnected from reality. Take the dot-com bubble in 2000 where everyone had a dot-com. It was like Betsy's mittens, dot-com. And everyone thinks, well, Betsy has a dot-com. I'm going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is going to be the next stock. This is going to be the next big thing. I'm going to be rich off of it. And all of a sudden, the curtain is pulled away and we realize that Betsy's Mittens.com isn't selling any product, isn't moving any product. It is just a Ponzi scheme. And the bubble bursts. The same thing happened with the U.S. housing market in 2008, which caused a, a major recession across the globe. It wasn't just America that was touched by that, but that was a global incidence when a whole bunch of people were buying houses and they didn't really have the credit to support it, but the banks were making money. So they kept on giving out more and more loans, thinking that these loans are going to be good. We're going to get paid back. But once they weren't paid back and everyone began to default on their homes and on their loans, the whole house of cards came crumbling down. Well, a similar thing happened in Japan. Japan's lost decade or their decade of deflation happened right after a boom cycle in the 1980s. Their interest rates were at an all-time low, meaning that banks were giving out tons of money and people were saying, yeah, give me your money because it's free. I'll take free money and I'll buy a house and I'll rent it out and I'll be able to pay you back without any problem. But People began doing this and prices began to skyrocket. It looked like they were having inflation, maybe even hyperinflation. At one point, property prices tripled within one year to the point where a three square meter area near the Imperial Palace was sold for $600,000. Three square meters was sold for $600,000. They then realized around this time that this was a bubble and it was unsustainable. What happened was the Bank of Japan began to raise their interest rates. There was at an all-time low and they began to raise their interest rates to try to discourage people from lending. But it was enough to pop the bubble. The moment that the borrowers realized that they weren't going to be able to pay their loans back, realize that they were going to default on all of their properties, it sent everything plummeting downwards. People began defaulting on their loans as they failed to make payments, and then they couldn't sell their properties because no one wanted to buy them because they knew that next week, next month, it was going to be worth less. And banks weren't lending money because they were getting burned left and right. As all of this happened, the stock market crashed as well, which you can imagine now people's pensions, people's retirements, people's incomes went crashing down to near zero. And they stayed that way for about 10 years. 
This is what's known as a common liquidity trap. What's a liquidity trap? A liquidity trap is when people like you and I, or investors, households, begin to hold on to their cash, whether it's in a short-term savings account or actually holding their physical cash rather than spending it. Now, the reasons that they would do this is one, there's no confidence that they can earn a higher rate by investing it. Meaning, if I'm going to put this dollar in the stock market, am I going to get anything back in return? Am I going to see 10% back or 7% or even 3% back on my dollar? Or if I hold this dollar, will I be able to buy 10% more with it next year, 50% more with it next month? If there's deflation, that means my dollar is able to buy more and more with each passing day. So it doesn't make sense to spend it. It makes more sense to save it. In a healthy economy, when people start to save money rather than spending the money, the governments can just lower the interest rates, which then will cause people to spend money. But as it was in Japan and as it has been in the West, in America, interest rates are already rock bottom and they have been rock bottom since 2008. So when you have low interest rates, what happens when you can't lower them anymore? Well, lowering interest rates at this point when you're in a liquidity trap really does not help people spend money because it doesn't matter. They know their dollar will be worth more tomorrow than it is today. And that all leads to what's called a credit crunch. A credit crunch is an economic scenario in which banks have tightened lending requirements and stopped lending. This is what happened in Japan. As the stock market crashed and the real estate market crashed and everyone was no longer able to pay the banks back, the banks were saying, well, we're going to be more stringent on who we lend money to, and we're going to have higher interest rates. At the same time, people are saying, well, we don't want to spend. We're going to end up saving our money rather than spending our money because we'll know it'll be worth more tomorrow. And this is exactly what happened in Japan. When the asset prices, the prices of stocks in real estate and housing began to fall, investors began to hoard their cash. They'd say, well, why should I put money in the stock market when I know tomorrow or next week it's going to go down? Why should I buy a house when I know it's going to be worth half as much if I wait for a month? And that causes people to stop spending. That liquidity trap turns around into a credit crunch because now all these people that are expecting to get some sort of flow of income, they are now defaulting on all of their loans. So when asset prices fall, the values of collateral backing the loan also fails. Imagine you have a house that you have a million dollar loan on. You have a million dollar house. Congratulations. All of a sudden deflation kicks in and that house is now worth 750000 now it's worth $500,000. Now it's worth $250,000, but you still owe a million dollars on that home. You're going to have to default on that home because you're so upside down in it due to deflation. You're not able to sell your million-dollar home for $250,000 because everyone knows that it'll be worth $100,000 next month. And the bank isn't going to want to lend any more money out because they just got burned on your loan. It's a sticky situation, deflation. So as Japan 
cut their spending to begin paying down their debts as everything was crashing, less money began flowing through the system. This caused deflation because people are now making less. They're now spending less because they're spending less. Businesses are making less and jobs are cut, which causes people to spend less and earn less. This often leads to reduction of debt through defaulting on it or through having to restructure. So if I'm not able to pay my debt, I can go to the bank and say, okay, can we restructure this loan? I'll either pay it back with a less interest rate over a longer period of time, or I'll pay you half of it back because I'm not able to pay the full amount back. Regardless, regardless, debt restructuring causes income and assets to disappear even faster because now less money again is flowing through the system. You would think canceling debts or restructuring debts would actually be a really good thing and cause money to flow even more, but it actually does the opposite because now there's not money flowing to the bank for the bank to be able to lend out to others, which again reduces the amount of velocity of cash in the system, which causes everything to go down again. Because if prices are going down, why would you spend? As we spend less money, we pay less in taxes. Now, woohoo, we're paying less in taxes. That's a great thing. But when we pay less in taxes, the government makes less money and they're able to spend less money on unemployment and on public services. Now, if you're not be able to spend money on unemployment and public services, especially in a time when unemployment is going through the roof, now you have deficits explode across nations. As a deficit explodes, the government needs to pay back those loans. Otherwise, they are going to default and the government will fail. So what's the solution to get more money? Well, you can either raise taxes or you can borrow money, which is through bonds, which is what's happening when banks print money and then lend it through a bond to the U.S. Treasury. So the U.S. Central Bank prints money, and it loans that money to the government through what's called a bond. But when there's no more money in the system to borrow, and there's not a lot of money to tax, where are you going to get the money from? Well, you're going to get the money from the rich. Now, when you start taxing the rich, what are they going to do? They are going to restructure their companies, spend less, and stop employing people. This in turn causes more deflation and it can lead to social unrest and political unrest and even war. So to avoid all the social unrest, the central banks end up printing money and then loaning it or selling it to the government in a form of a bond so that the government has an increase of cash flow, which they can then pay off their debts and or give to people who are on unemployment. Now, this is what happened in 2008. Governments across the globe printed trillions and trillions of dollars, and we did not see inflation. In fact, since 2008 till now, we have been in America at a near 0% rate of interest. It was only towards the end of 2019 that interest rates were slowly beginning to rise, and then they came back down in 2020. This leads us back to the initial question that we asked, which 
is hyperinflation on the horizon? Is all of this money that's being printed, will it lead to hyperinflation like we've seen in Venezuela, like we've seen in Lebanon, and like we saw in Germany in 1923? And the short answer is no. It's actually not going to lead to hyperinflation. You'd have to print trillions and trillions of dollars year, month over month, in order for hyperinflation to set in. And what's really being combated right now is deflation, a global deflation. Because you and I, we're not going out as much, we're not traveling as much, we're not spending as much. In fact, people are saving more money now than ever before. Why? Because they're uncertain about their future. And when we're uncertain about our future and we're saving more money, there's less money that's flowing through the system and it's cash flow. It's the velocity of cash that creates inflation. Now, I'm an American and we all got our, our stimulus checks. Well, most people that I talk to, they didn't go out and buy a new TV. They saved that money or they used that money to pay down debt. And when you're taking cash and you're paying off debt, that is a form of savings. That is a form of saying, I'm uncertain what the future will hold. I'm going to try to make the wise and safe decision. But now when you have a lot of people doing that, it's causing deflation across global markets. I talked to people in Dubai and they say the same thing is what I hear is being said in America. Everything's really dry right now. There's not a lot of money that's flowing through the system. You look across Saudi Arabia and all the, the spending has come to a halt. It's all across the globe. Here's Jim Rickards, an economist, who's commenting on what he sees is coming when it comes to deflation. We are going to get deflation. And the reason has nothing to do with printing money. Printing money does not cause inflation. What causes inflation is something called velocity, which is the turnover of money. And I can demonstrate it with some, uh, you know, I, I, I can do calculus, but I always say there's, there aren't too many economic problems you can't solve with sixth grade math uh, or sixth grade arithmetic for that matter. So take the following. Um, right now, the Fed has taken its balance sheet to $7 trillion, up from um, about $3.8 trillion at the start of the pandemic. So by the way, all that progress they made getting from $4.5 trillion down to $3.8 trillion, they're now up to $7 trillion. So it's all been reversed, and they're probably on the way to $10 trillion. But, but do this math. $7 trillion times zero is what? It's zero. Yeah. Meaning, uh, it's the, the money supply times velocity equals nominal GDP. If you don't have velocity, you don't have an economy. Seven trillion times zero is zero. So the key to inflation, the key to nominal growth and nominal growth and excessive um, uh, capacity is inflation uh, in terms of prices um, is velocity. Velocity is the turnover of money. So I, I use the, uh, the simple example, I'm at a bar, I'm leaving for the night, I tip the bartender, the bartender uh, takes a taxi home and tips the taxi driver, and the taxi driver takes the tip and puts gas in his taxi. Uh, that money has velocity of three. My $1 supported $3 of goods and services, the bar tip, the taxi tip, and the gasoline. But what if instead I stay home and watch TV, leave my money in the bank? My money has velocity of zero. In other words, I have the money, but it supports no goods and services. So velocity is the key, and, it's, and the velocity is psychological, and that's what central banks don't understand. They, um, the Federal Reserve, and, but I dare say the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia and, and others, 
they can stick the landing. They can make the money supply whatever they want, almost to two decimal places. But they can't change psychology. They can't change how you and I feel. And if we feel, you know, prosperous, uh, you know, uh, everything's coming up roses, going to go out and you know, take our friends to dinner and uh, we'll throw a party, whatever, um, then that's a certain amount of velocity. But if uh, people are fearful, if they're engaged in what are called precautionary savings, sa precautionary savings are savings where, you know, according to your lifestyle or your business plan, you don't necessarily need to do it, but you do it uh, because you're concerned about uncertainty. You're concerned about what comes next. So if your neighbor is unemployed, it's a good bet that your neighbor is saving like crazy, spending as little as possible because they need to pay the rent. But you have your job. Well, guess what? You're probably going to save more too because you don't know if you're next. Uh, what assurance do you have that you're not the next one to get laid off? And so you're going to save more. In the U.S., the savings rate had been going up from about 5% to about 8%, which is pretty high. In April, it went um, to 33%. And in May, it maintained a high level of 25%. That's the percentage of discretionary income that's going into savings. This is what you're up against. So the recession may already be over, but the depression has years to run. And that's the difference. Um, just to give again, use a, a metaphor. I fall into a 50-foot hole and I climb out 10 feet. Well, I, you know, 10 feet, that's growth, but I still got 40 feet to go. And that's really the problem. And that is the problem. When we're getting income, because we're concerned about the future, we're saving that money. And as he said, it, in May of 2020, in America, people were saving 25% of their income, which is extremely high. What is the way out of a deflationary cycle? Well, first would be to cut spending. And this is called austerity. So whether that's done from on a personal level or even a governmental level, because they want to cut that spending so that their deficit doesn't balloon. Number two is the renegotiation of debts and defaulting debts, which is pay down your debt or renegotiate your debt. This is what's happening in that credit crunch cycle and the, the liquidity trap and the credit crunch. You're paying down your debt. You're fixing your debt so that you're not defaulting on it. But again, that causes more deflation. So you have to either tax the rich to get out of it or you have to print money to get out of it. Now, notice we can't print money and uh, we can't necessarily tax someone else. So how can you and I, well, there is a fifth there's a fifth trick, a fifth tool that can help you and I survive this coming season. As, as Jim said, it's not just a recession. It's not something that's going to last for 24 months or 30 months, but really we're looking at a global depression. We could see something that's lasting for decades because right now we're not seeing inflation. Because there, everything's come to a halt. There's not cash flow. People are out of jobs. Unemployment rates are high. When there's not that cash flow, you cannot see that inflation. And instead, we are going to be battling deflation. So what can you and I do? Well, stick around for the Weaver and Loom segment where we find that out. And if you found this information, this episode helpful and insightful, the way that you can learn more is by sharing it with your friends and having a conversation with them about it. Have a conversation with your girlfriends, have a conversation with your guy friends and say, hey, 
Have a conversation with your husband or your wife and say, hey, this is what could be coming on the horizon. We, this is what we could be seeing. How can we as a family, how can we as a bunch of guys, how can we as a bunch of, of girls organize our world so that we can overcome this, so that we can be prepared for what is coming ahead? Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom at the part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. And we've been talking about the future. We've been talking about what might be happening with micro and mac- macro economics. Now, I'm not by any means an expert in economics. None of this is financial advice. It is really uh, conversations that I have been having in my circles and I think it's it's something that's on a lot of people's minds, which is what is coming in the future? Are we going to see hyperinflation? And if so, how do we combat it? Or are we going to be seeing a deflationary turn in the market? What does that mean? What does that mean for the stock market? What does that mean for real estate? What does that mean for my job? And how can you and I, because we, unless we're, highly involved in politics and we're economics and, you know, making global policies and we're calling up the IMF and, and talking to them. We have very little on that big level. But as Jim Rickard said, it's the confidence, the psychological effect that really plays in to a deflationary cycle. And that is something that you and I can defend ourselves against. So here's the quote for today. It is a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. That's from Proverbs 10.4. And the, this is the fifth point. The fifth point is become more productive. The way that we can find our way out of a depression, that we can make our way out of a deflationary cycle, you and I, is by becoming more productive, by increasing our productivity, by having products that are more valuable to sell. And we saw this the same with inflation. It it works for both, whether it's an, an inflationary cycle or a deflationary cycle. It's how can we add more value to people's lives? And, you know, whether it's through bartering, whether it's, you know, in in an inflationary cycle, if there's hyperinflation, okay, well, what, what, trade do you have that you can actually barter with people and say, hey, I'll give you this service if you give me this service rather than exchanging money. Likewise, in a deflationary cycle, if you are able to take the time now to increase your abilities, to increase your productivity, to increase your skill set, to increase your, your knowledge, how valuable you are to the market and the world around you, you will be better off in the future. Because if you can become someone who not only increases your own productivity, but you can increase the productivity of people around you, you can become not just a help to yourself and your family, but to your community. And you can lift people up out of this cycle together. That is all for this show. Thank you for being here. If you have any questions, 
for me, you can WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero, and I will answer them maybe even right here on the show if you ask a stupid enough question. I like stupid questions because I can give stupid answers. Finally, if you want to increase your productivity, I would recommend my book, Anchored the Discipline to Stop Drifting. I wrote this book in a time of my life where I felt like I was drifting and I felt like I was not being productive. And so this book was really a a manifesto to myself. It is a short, less than 100-page book, highly actionable, that has helped me become more productive and more focused in my life so that I can reach my goals and dreams and so that I can help others reach theirs. That's all. Thanks for listening. Remember, go out and own your future.